I love Sundays. They're just the best day. And there are a lot of things that I look forward to when Sunday comes around. One of my very favorite things that happens every Sunday is that we have lunch after worship. And I love that because Ian will be there, our four-year-old. And I can count on some moment. Hey, buddy. Yeah, I'm talking about you. I can count on the moment during lunch when he will say, did you know? And then he will begin to tell us the Bible story he heard that morning. And I'm glad to say usually I do know the story. <laughs> but I always like to hear it from him. And I'm always in awe of those who give their time so that my four-year-old can know the stories of God. Maybe my second favorite thing about every single Sunday is Sunday night when we are coming home from uh, music and mission and confirmation and all the things that we do on Sunday night. And I hear Ian in the back seat humming whatever song from the great history of our faith they have learned that night. And what a marvelous, wonderful thing for a four-year-old to know the words, the Savior like a shepherd lead us. That's the sort of promise that sticks with you. What a joy it is to see children formed in worship and then let them form us and shape us. The season of Lent is a time of formation for us. It's a season in which we seek to let God do some work on us and we pay attention to some of the things that we often set aside or neglect. We give more intention and attention to things that we would otherwise not see. And we're doing it this Lent by looking at particular figures who had a particularly pivotal role to play in the passion of Jesus Christ. Each and every one of the people we'll be looking at had a moment when they could have spoken, when they could have done something, and some of them did and some of them didn't. And as we look at the roles they played, we will be looking at our own lives and looking at our own power and thinking about when it is we have used the power God gave us, when it is we have chosen not to, and when it is that we had a power we didn't even realize. Today we get to do so by looking at one of the more overlooked figures from the passion of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. The best explanation anyone ever gave me for the season of Lent was a preacher who said that Lent is about learning to be a sinner. If we didn't know Jesus, then we would never guess that we are sinners. If we didn't know Jesus, we would think that morality is something that kind of everybody knows more or less what it is. Most everybody knows what is right and what is wrong. And most everybody tries to do their best. Some folks go a little too far sometimes. And some folks fall short. And we, none of us, quite live up to the standard, but we have a pretty good idea of what we are aiming for. And then we meet Jesus. And Jesus so totally redefines our lives, so totally redefines what they are about and what our lives are for and how good they can be that some of the things that we used to cherish and even be really proud of suddenly seem oppressive. And we realize that even they are not our best but are often signs of our own shortcomings. We usually learn 
that we are sinning by learning that there is a better way to do what we considered normal. Earlier this week, Woods and I were thinking about this fact, and we were trying to think of sins that we had to learn about as a culture, new sins that we might not have known about a few years ago, but that we suddenly became aware of. And when Woods and I were talking about it, all we could think were fishing-related sins and how our approaches to fishing have changed over the years. We thought maybe we could cast a wider net to use a fishing metaphor. And so I put it on Facebook. I said, what are some new sins that have shown up in the last little while? Something that everybody used to be okay with, but that now we see as harmful or detrimental to ourselves or others. I got a lot of great answers. I got so many I could make a sermon or even a series about them, but I was particularly grateful for, two, for an answer I got from a few different people, including Marlo Blankenship and Jessica Barrick here in the church. And they both mentioned seat belts and car seats. You know, when the car first came out, we were so enraptured by its power and its possibilities that nobody paid much attention to how deadly they were. In the first 30 years that cars were around, the fatality rate was darn near catastrophic. Then in 1958, the Saab Motor Company and Ford Motor Company both introduced seatbelts for the very first time, and within two years, the fatality rate for automobiles in America had been cut in half. And all of a sudden, we saw a much better way to go about driving. But believe it or not, there were some people who were opposed on principle to putting on their seatbelts. And so through the 80s and the 90s, you saw a slew of laws come into effect requiring seatbelts. And what do you know? The fatality rate fell and was cut in half again and has kept falling ever since. And to get there, it's taken us 62 years and a bazillion television ads and public service announcements. And it's taking that really annoying chime in your car to remind you to use your seatbelt. But now after all this time, we know what we should do because we have seen a better way. More than all those other warnings, it's the stories we've heard of lives that were saved that make us aware of who we should be and what we should do when we drive. Makes us aware there is a better way and that doesn't mean we always do the right thing now. Sometimes we still forget. Sometimes we're ordinary enough that we just won't put on the seatbelt. But we no longer can feel good about that. We know we're doing the wrong thing even as we are doing it. It's like the preacher Will Williman once said, we have to be taught to sin. That is, to know we are sinning when we do it. But maybe there's a simpler way to learn to sin. Maybe we only need a dream. Not just any dream will do, of course. We need a good dream. We need a dream that is so much better than what we are accustomed to. A dream that makes reality look shabby by comparison. Almost 51 years ago, a guy a few years younger than I am stood up in front of a really big crowd and he said, I have a dream that one day right there in Alabama, little white boys and white girls We'll join hands with little black boys and black girls as sisters and brothers. And when he said that, people who had never imagined that, who had never even thought that was a thing one would imagine, who had just assumed that the situation as normal was the way it was meant to be, suddenly they looked around and they realized what was normal was sin. 
troubling thing to learn. That some of the most ordinary facts of life can in fact be the work of Satan. The best dreams, they tend to be the most troubling. And so now, here, we have another dream to contend with. A dream about a man who is innocent and not just innocent of the thing he's accused of. He is entirely innocent. Innocent of everything. So very innocent that he is the only one who has ever deserved to be called truly good. And it's the goodness of the man that troubles Mrs. Pilate. She has a dream and she sees his goodness. And it's the goodness that troubles her. Perhaps because of what it means for her, maybe because of what it means for everything that is around her, and maybe for what it means about what's going on inside of her. I wonder if you've ever had this experience of a dream that it loses something when you try and talk about it. You wake up from the dream and it still feels so real and so tangible that you feel like you could even put your arms around it if you just hit the snooze button one more time and stayed there. But then you get up and you shuffle around and you put on the coffee and somebody else in the house wakes up and you try and tell them about the dream and you realize that already it is fading from your memory. You try and relate the funniest bit, the one where the lion was on the tightrope and you are dying laughing because you can still remember how it felt to have that dream and the person who is hearing it doesn't get it at all. And their eyebrows are raised and at best they will chuckle. They're not laughing with you. They're laughing at you. The richer, the deeper the dream we have, the harder it is to put it into words. But if you don't tell a dream, something worse will happen. With time and with silence, the dream will fade away entirely. You won't even remember how it felt by the end of the day. If you don't talk about a dream quickly, you'll soon find you have nothing to say. Pilate's wife was not expected to have anything to say. Certainly not about an itinerant Jewish preacher who had been brought up on charges of treason. That was her husband's job. And last week we heard about how Pilate ruled Judea. He was certainly expected to rule his own family the same way. That's how the Romans understood the world. The Romans believed that family was a miniature version of the government and that the purpose of the Roman family was to produce loyal citizens, soldiers, and governors, and thinkers who would contribute to the glory of Rome. The Romans got this ideal from a lot of places, but they especially got it from a guy named Aristotle. Maybe you've heard of him. And so influential was his teaching in Jesus' day that some parts of the Roman Empire, when they wrote their laws concerning family life, they just copy and pasted from Aristotle's politics. And so you can find in many of the Roman law codes these words written by Aristotle, quote, the state is made up of households. And so before speaking of the state, we must speak of the management of the household. A husband and father rules over wife and children. For the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. The inequality between male and female is permanent. Put another way, you can't run the government if you can't run your family. 
And the you in this case always means a man. That's the world Mrs. Pilate woke up in that morning. Trying to remember those vanishing strands of a dream that needed to be spoken. So she calls the messenger over. And she tries to make the dream as real to this messenger as it is to her. And she tries to make it so real that her husband will know that it is real. She says, leave this righteous man alone. I have suffered much today in a dream because of him. And that's all she's got. The only thing she has to offer is a dream. She has no jurisdiction in this particular case or in this particular place. She has no right or power to say that Jesus was righteous. But she did it anyway. With no standing, with nothing to gain, and with little more to offer than a dream, she spoke. And last week, we looked at Jesus through the eyes of her husband, Pontius Pilate, the man who seemed to hold all the power And then we watch Pontius Pilate wash his hands and pretend there's nothing he can do, that he was powerless just before he condemned Jesus to torture and to death. Supposedly, Pilate had all the power, but he did nothing. Supposedly, his wife had no power, but she spoke up. And maybe you wonder what difference it really made. After all, Jesus still died None of the other Gospels even see fit to mention her. Only the Gospel of Matthew. And only in this one verse. But maybe it's not a coincidence, however, that it's also in Matthew that we get the only account of Pontius Pilate washing his hands. In full view of the court and the crowd, the same folks who saw him receive a message from his wife. Maybe she got under his skin. Maybe she made him suspect for the first time that this thing that he called justice and peacekeeping might in fact be something like what the Jews called sin. And maybe it doesn't seem that Mrs. Pilate did very much, but it's worth wondering, how do we even know what she said? Somebody else must have heard it. You got to wonder, did the messenger announce to Pilate in front of the whole crowd, your wife has been dreaming about this guy? That would be awkward. Or did the messenger just walk up to Pilate and whisper in his ear and then go whisper it to somebody else and then to somebody else until all Pilate's palace was maybe whispering about it? Either way, however it happened, we know that the word got around because eventually the word got to us. It doesn't seem like Mrs. Pilate did very much, but somebody was talking about it. And maybe she made them see Pilate a little differently. Maybe they saw Jesus a little differently. She certainly helps us to see things differently. You know, when I was in eighth grade, I had this great world history teacher. But she described this era in world history a little differently than the Bible does. A little differently than the Jews seem to have understood it in their own time. In the history books, 
The first century was what we call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was a golden age. It was the era in which they built all the things that we go to Italy and to uh, uh, the old Roman world to see these days. This was the era when they built the Colosseum, when they wrote the histories of Plutarch, when they built roads that stretched across the world, when Gladiator happened. It was a time of outrageous wonder and grandeur. And in the Romans' mind, the Pax Romana was the period when the empire brought civilization to all the backwaters of the world. That's how the Romans thought of themselves. Probably Pilate's wife thought the same. They thought they were the good guys. So much so, in fact, that when they conquered a new kingdom, they'd send a runner called an evangelist. And the evangelist would carry a scroll called a gospel. And the evangelist would go to all the cities with a scroll and they would say, hear the good news. Rome has won again. Civilization is spreading. But with nothing more than a dream, Pilate's court hears a whisper that maybe things aren't so glorious after all. When Mrs. Pilate saw Jesus' innocence, she saw what the Jews had seen all along, that the glory of Rome came by sacrificing innocence. It came by sacrificing justice. And that Rome would even sacrifice the most righteous one. She couldn't stop the crucifixion, but she set people to talking, and maybe she helped them to see things differently. Maybe she helped them to know that they were doing sin even as they were doing it. She helps us to see a few things differently too. Not just the nature of Rome or the crucifixion, but the nature of the household. You know, it's strange to me. Every once in a while, I end up in conversations with Christians where we want to talk about the family, and a lot of people get hung up on Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. I don't know why we never start one verse earlier. Ephesians 5.21, which says everyone must submit to one another. I don't know why we cut it off before we get to 5.23 that says the man must love his wife as he does his own body. You see, those are the parts that aren't in Aristotle. Those are the parts that we only find out through the church, through the transforming work of Jesus That's the part the Romans didn't have in their laws. That's the part that we can only find out from Jesus who rules not by sacrificing others, but by giving of himself. Mrs. Pilate reminds us that God's power is not doled out in unequal measures according to your gender or your paycheck or your title. But God's power resides in the testimony of all who will confess his goodness. Mrs. Pilate reminds us that neither man nor woman nor child rules the household or the church. Jesus does with all who will testify to him. So no, Mrs. Pilate could not stop the worst thing that ever happened. But that doesn't make her powerless. And neither are you. In your household, your school, your neighborhood, your state, your job, your church, your witness is your power. 
And if all you have is a hazy dream, a sense that it could be better than this, that God made us for something better than even this, then that is power. And yes, Mrs. Pilate had power, but she couldn't stop the worst thing that ever happened. And neither can you stop all the sin and the evil in the world. But you can see it more clearly. And you can know sin and evil for what they are when they are happening. And when you see sin and evil for what they are, you never know what might happen. In just the next chapter from this one, Matthew tells us that after Jesus rose from the dead, Pilate's guards explained it away by starting a rumor that Jesus' body had been stolen. They set that rumor going in Pilate's court. But something tells me that a certain dreamer saw right through that story. Saw it for what it was, a lie and a sin. And I hope she went back looking for a better explanation. I hope she found it. And when she did, I hope she did what she did very best. I hope she told somebody. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, make us bold to use the power of our witness that the world might see you and itself more clearly. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.